If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians is there in the New Testament, about halfway through the New Testament in the back of your Bible, so maybe the, the last eighth of your Bible, if you're looking for it. We are continuing our series uh, in the letter of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church, or uh, as he says, the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, who live in the city of Ephesus. And while it's an ancient letter, it comes to us in whatever time or place we are with authority and with practicality, as God's word always does to those who are indwelt by his spirit. Uh, up to this point, we've seen that after an introduction and greeting, Paul opens his letter in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 with a long and intricate sentence detailing all that God has done for us in Christ. We've seen that the past two Sundays that it is a, it's a Trinitarian call to praise, revealing the, the interwoven work of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as they act in unity but also in distinct ways to bring about our salvation. And this is all a part of the plan and the purpose of God, and it all leads to the glory of God alone. These key themes, themes of the, the Trinity at work, themes of God's plan and purposes, themes of a, a call to praise our great God, they run through all of these verses, and they are present here in our passage today, which is verses 11 through 14, while we finish out our study of these, this call to, to praise. And while these verses continue these themes, they also add some new truths that lead us into worship of God for all that he has done for us. Up until this point, we've seen that we've been blessed by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless. We've been predestined in love to adoption. We've been redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And in these four verses, we find a third call to worship. This then is our big idea for today. Praise the Father, Son, and Spirit for the equal inheritance they have planned and guaranteed for us. Praise the Father, Son, and Spirit for the equal inheritance they have planned and guaranteed for us. What's an inheritance? When you think about that word inheritance or inheriting, you might think about inheriting certain traits and characteristics from your parents or from your grandparents, things that, that are true about you because they were in them. Inheritance also finds its root in the, those words. Uh, they're, they're hereditary, there's something that's passed down. But here the idea seems to be more to be more of receiving possessions or money or property from someone else. Maybe you've received a portion of an inheritance from a relative who has died. Or perhaps you are saving up money to give as an inheritance to your children or to your loved ones. When you think about inheritances, anything you know about them, some questions often come up, common questions. One would be, is there a plan in place? In other words, has a will been drafted? Have all of the necessary steps been taken and all the forms been signed for this inheritance to go out? Another question might be about who is going to receive this inheritance? Is it going to be equally divided or will one person receive more than the other? Is the favorite child going to get 75% uh, and the other children not as much? 
And then there's the, the question of how certain this inheritance is. Someone could be relying on the hope of getting a specific amount of money, but is that inheritance guaranteed? Is it, is it sure? As Paul speaks of the inheritance that's coming to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, we find that he is referring not to money and not to property, but he's referring to the fullness of the blessing of salvation that is coming to us. He shows us that while we have received a portion of our heavenly inheritance, we are still waiting for the complete realization of all that the Father has promised and all, of, all that the Son has purchased. And as we think about that heavenly inheritance, some of those same questions about earthly inheritances apply to this heavenly inheritance. In other words, is there a plan in place? Is there a plan for us to receive this? Has it been thought out? Second, is there an equal portion of this inheritance for all of God's children, or are some people gonna get more than others? And third, and finally, I'm staking my eternal soul on this inheritance, so I wanna know if it's guaranteed. Am I really going to get everything that has been promised? And here in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, all of those questions are answered. And we are led to praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for the equal inheritance that they have planned and guaranteed for us. With that in mind, let's look at Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. I'll read the, the whole uh, sentence, as it were, from verses three through 14, uh, but we will focus on verses 11 through 14 this afternoon. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possess possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Praise the Father, Son, and Spirit for the equal inheritance they have planned and guaranteed for us. Now, before we think about this planned, equal, guaranteed, God-glorifying inheritance that is ours, we need to also recognize that we not only receive an inheritance from God, but that we, in fact, are God's inheritance. And in fact, the way that Paul uses the word inheritance in these verses allows for that emphasis. So we might think of this as a preliminary point uh, to our main thoughts from Ephesians uh, chapter 1 verses 11 through 14, and it's this truth, we are God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance. We encounter this language of inheritance applied to God's specific people all the way back in Exodus and Deuteronomy. After the incident with the golden calf, 
in Exodus 32 through 34, Moses begs that God would take he and the people of Israel as his inheritance. And then in Deuteronomy 32.9, it tells us that the Lord's portion is his people and that Jacob is said to be his heritage or his inheritance. Psalm 74.2 connects the redemption that we talked about last week with the Im- this image of inheritance. This is what the psalmist says to God. Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed. See that connection? God has bought us through redemption and we are his inheritance. Verse 13 talks about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it's the image of a letter being sealed to authenticate that it's truly coming from the person that it says it's coming from. So maybe you've seen these wax seals with a specific imprint on them. A seal also communicates ownership. Uh, Think about a library book that might be embossed on the front page or, or stamped on the binding that says, this belongs to the Louisville Free Public Library. And in a similar way, God's God's spirit in us is the seal that shows we are his. He has stamped us. He's adopted us. He's given us a, a new name. He has purchased us with the blood of his son. And he has put the seal of the Holy Spirit on us to announce that we are his own. In a world that, where we can often feel rejected, God says we are his that we are his inheritance. On days when we doubt our value or we wonder if if anyone really cares about us, this is what we can know. We can know that we are the Lord's treasure. We are his portion. We are his inheritance. And yet we've also even been given an inheritance and a treasure through salvation. So which one is Paul talking about here? Is it that, that we are God's inheritance or that God has given us an inheritance? Well, could it be both? I think it could be both, and I don't think that uh, that's the easy way out to just say it's both, because think about this. To be God's inheritance is our inheritance. To to be God's inheritance is the inheritance that, that we have. All that we are hoping and longing for as God's children is ours. Why? Because God has made us his. Maybe you've heard that song, How He Loves, by John Mark McMillan. He says, We are his portion, and he is our prize. I think that's what Paul's saying here. We are God's portion, but but he is also the prize that we are longing for. So with the the depth of God's love for all we who are his children in our minds and our hearts, let's think about the inheritance that is ours because of what God has done and the, the specific role of the Holy Spirit in redemption. First this, this is a planned inheritance. It's a planned inheritance. Have you had this experience? You're reading a book and you get to the end of a page and you realize you have no idea what you just read. I I think that's the only way that you could read the sentence of verses three through 14 and deny the absolute sovereignty of God in our salvation. In fact, you could probably read these verses in sort of a zoned out state and still come to the end and probably say, I think he said something about God's will or purposes. Because those ideas are all over this passage. As Derek Thomas said, uh, it's as if Paul swallowed the the, the thesaurus entry on the word predestination. And now all of those words are just coming out in this sentence. We see it in the previous verse. Just look and trace it a little bit. It says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world. Verse five, he predestined us. Verse five also, it's according to the purpose of his will. Um, going down a little bit further, we see in wisdom and insight, he's made to, known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So there's lots of planning and, and processing and predestining and choosing going on here. And then look at verse 11. Paul uses three different words or phrases to talk about God's planning of salvation. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, God's sovereign will in salvation is unavoidable. And yet, this idea of an all-powerful God who ordains, orchestrates, and wills everything to happen in the world, it's just not something that we, in our natural sinful condition, are very fond of. We like to think that we are in control, that we're in control of our own destiny. William Ernest Henley says this as much in his famous poem, Invictus. Let me read the, all, all, four, uh, stand, all four sections. He says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, and this is the part you know. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the, the heart cry of all of us apart from Christ. Of course, we could also choose the alternate path of attributing things just to luck or to chance or to coincidence more than to the sovereign will of God. And this is nothing new either. Uh, Bao writes, uh, uh, the commentator writes this, the Ephesians themselves bowed to lady luck or fate in their affairs by prefacing their many public actions with a dedication to the goddess luck. <laughs> just, that was God's sovereign will that that should. <laughs> so, the, to this goddess luck. But this is what he says, in Paul's gospel, there is no competing arbitrary capital L luck, but rather there's an omnipotent God who has graciously revealed the mystery of his will in Christ. Our salvation is not a matter of our will, and it's not a matter of chance. It's the plan and the purpose of God. If you receive an inheritance here in, in this life from a relative or for a friend, there's a sense in which you've done nothing to earn that. The person's choice of you is rooted in their love for you, apart from any effort by you. They, they made a plan for you to receive this. They thought of you and they willed this inheritance to you. They were not forced to do so. That's why all the wills have a, a little stipulation that says this person is of clear mind. They're doing it not under duress or coercion. No, they made a plan on purpose to give you this. And this is the inheritance that we have from God. In love, he has predestined us to adoption. He has purchased us. He has redeemed us at the cost of the blood of Jesus. And he has set his seal of ownership on us by sending his spirit. We are his by his work alone. And all that we have, to, we have now obtained through the gospel, it, all, all that we have now obtained through the gospel and all that we will obtain in the new kingdom is according to God's gracious and perfect plan. Not our will, but his will alone. So this is a planned inheritance. 
Notice next, it's an equal inheritance. It's an equal inheritance. This gets at that question of whether or not certain people are going to inherit more than others. And the importance of this question goes all the way back to this divide between Jews and Gentiles that sort of looms in the background of this letter. The Gentiles could have been wondering if they were lesser children of God through Christ because they were not Jewish. But Paul shows that the way God's plan unfolds doesn't reveal a division between Jew and Gentile, but rather a new unity in Christ and an equal inheritance for everyone who believes. So last week, you remember, we, we were paying attention to pronouns, the he's and the him's. And this week, we have to think about some other pronouns, namely the we's and the you's. Uh, in verses 11, what are the we's and the you's in verses 11 through 14 referring to? There's some back in, in verses 3 through 10, and there's just, Paul is talking about the blessings that, that all believers have, but something different is happening in verses 11 through 14, 14. And the first indication is in that phrase in verse 12 that says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. We who were the first to hope in Christ. Who's Paul talking about? Paul seems to be speaking of a specific group, and that group was those who were the first to see Jesus as the Messiah and to trust in him. And as we look at the gospel accounts and as we look at the book of Acts, it seems safe to assume that Paul is talking about the Jewish people. This makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It was the Jewish people who were looking for a Messiah because he had been promised to them throughout the Old Testament. Jesus comes and he challenges their underlying assumptions about what the Messiah would be like, but by God's grace, many Jewish people came to trust in Jesus. And in the early days of the church, it really was only the, the Jewish people who were trusting in the message of the gospel. But of course, that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was for all people. All the way back to the promise of Abraham, his plan was for all nations. And so yes, the Jewish people were the first to hope in Christ, as Paul was, but then in verse 13, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, the majority of whom were likely Gentiles, he says, in him, you also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we who were the first believed, but you also have received the Spirit. These Gentiles heard about Jesus and they received the word of Jesus as a word of truth and as good news. Notice those, those phrases. The, the message of Jesus as the Savior of the world is a word of truth. In a world of lies and spin and conflicting stories, the message of the gospel is truth. And also in a world of depressing and difficult news, the word about Jesus is good news. And by God's grace, the Gentiles in Ephesus heard this word as truth they heard it as good news, and they believed in Jesus, and therefore they received the Holy Spirit. Or in Paul's words, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And among many other things, the Spirit's sealing does something, and it reveals the equal blessing that comes from God. We said earlier this, this seal on a letter or on a scroll authenticated something or marked ownership, and the seal of the Spirit, the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit in those who believe, marks us as truly God's people. Now, if we go back to the book of Acts, we, can start, we start to see how important the Spirit's filling was in authenticating a person as a true child of God and a member of this covenant community. In Acts 11, after Cornelius, one of the, the first, if not the first Gentile converts in his household, after they believe in Jesus, Peter goes and he tells the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem this happened and they're skeptical. They don't understand, they don't, they don't believe that it's even possible that Gentiles can become Christians. 
So Peter explains what happens, and as he does, the most convincing proof of the legitimacy that these Gentiles were truly Christians was what? It was that they had received the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says in Acts 11, 15 to 18. He's he's speaking about when he was with Cornelius. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is his conclusion. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Then Luke comments and says, when they heard these things, that means the the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The sealing of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit of God that is the gift given to every child of God the moment that they trust in Jesus for salvation has deep implications and applications. But here in Ephesians, the emphasis seems to be placed on the equal inheritance that the Spirit's indwelling of believers brings. There are, not, there are no divisions. Everyone receives the Spirit. There, There are not certain races or genders or age brackets that get more or less of the Spirit. We all have an equal inheritance in Christ because we all have the same Holy Spirit. And it is this theological truth that then paves the way for the equality that Paul's gonna emphasize in the second half of chapter two. But we'll get there, but we might pause even now and just consider if there are those in the body of Christ that we're tempted to look down on and maybe see as second-class members of the, the body of Christ. Maybe it's conscious, maybe it's some con- subconscious. Do, do we allow racism or ethnocentrism of some kind to creep into the church and we start to consider the people who look more like us to be more children of God than other people? Do we see people with more or less money as having more or less of the Spirit? Brothers in Christ, do we look down on our sisters in Christ and fail to recognize their equal share of the Spirit, their equal status as children of God? Do we see the young or the old as children of God with the same Spirit and the same status and the same value, or are there divisions in our mind? The reality is that all, 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 who by God's grace see the word about Jesus as the word of truth and good news and who believe in him are given the Spirit of God in equal measure. And this sealing of the Holy Spirit on all children of God means that there is a unique unity for those of us who are in Christ. What an inheritance. This inheritance has been planned. It's an equal inheritance. Third, it's a guaranteed inheritance. A guaranteed inheritance. Here we're answering that question of whether or not we can trust that we're going to receive this inheritance, which is a natural question because we're skeptical people, and maybe rightfully so. Life can be disappointing. Things don't often go the way we expect. The burger that's pictured on the menu doesn't look like the burger that's on your plate. Uh, The toy that you got for Christmas broke on December 26th. Your favorite shirt shrunk in the dryer. And in light of our skepticism, and some of it rightfully so, companies and advertisers do what? They offer you a guarantee, (laughs) a satisfaction guarantee, a money-back guarantee, a lifetime guarantee, the Aldi twice-as-nice guarantee. That's my favorite one. 
So here's the question. How can I know that I will really receive the inheritance that's been promised to me in the gospel? What's my guarantee of the kingdom? And here we see that the sending of the Spirit not only attests to this equal inheritance that we have, but that the Spirit is the guarantee of our future inheritance. The word in verse 14 for guarantee is an interesting one. The closest English equivalent that we might have would be the idea of a down payment. Some of you have become very familiar with this term lately. A down payment. So you think about buying a house where the seller requires a down payment or earnest money to secure the purchase of that home. So a portion of the price of the house is given to show that the buyer is serious and to secure that home before all of the money is paid. That earnest money is not in addition to the price of the home, but it actually goes towards paying for the house. Now, typically, I, th- I don't know, I'm, I'm not real familiar with this. You can check with Andrea. She's always, she knows my, she takes care of all this in our house. But typically, you can put down earnest money, but you can still get it back if you change your mind. And yet, this here, the down payment in the ancient world seems to function more in a binding way that that money seals the deal and assures that this is, this is going to happen. So now take that picture of, of, an, of all of this earnest money, down payment, and apply it to the inheritance of salvation and the idea that the Spirit is the down payment of our future inheritance. What's Paul saying? He's helping us to see that the Spirit guarantees the fullness of our future inheritance because he is a portion of that future inheritance. Now, what I'm not saying is that the Spirit is only partially God. That's not true, because he is fully God. Rather, it's to say that there are more blessings to come in the new kingdom, but the Spirit living in us is a foretaste of what is to come and a rock-solid, eternally binding guarantee that we are the fathers and we will receive our inheritance. Think about this. You're promised an inheritance. Everyone who trusts in Christ is given the hope of an eternal home in heaven free from sin and death where we will live in the eternal light of the presence of God. And what does God give us as a guarantee that that will happen? What is the down payment that he provides as an assurance that he will come again? The down payment is himself. He gives himself to us. He has given his life to purchase our salvation, and now he gives his very self, his very spirit, to assure us that he will come again and take us to himself so that where he is, there we will also be. Paul says of the spirit in Romans 8, verses 15 through 17, make the, the connection is clear. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. We're getting the inheritance. We are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a beautiful promise the inheritance is guaranteed because the Spirit has been given. Let me just say in passing then that this makes clear at least one of the dangers of saying that we don't receive God's Spirit at the moment of salvation, but at some later point, as some Christian 
uh, traditions teach. And the danger is that if the Spirit comes at some later point, then when I become a Christian, I have no guarantee of my salvation until that happens. I have no security. I have no earthly foretaste. I have no down payment of my eternal hope. So praise God that he doesn't withhold his spirit, but he gives it the moment we believe, just as he did at Pentecost. He pours out his spirit, and he is indiscriminate and unrestrained in how he does it. It's poured out on all who believe, and it's poured out in the same fullness on all of God's children. We have an inheritance that God has planned, an inheritance that is equally given to all who believe, an inheritance that God has guaranteed by sending his very spirit to dwell within us. And the upshot of all of this is that this inheritance is a God-glorifying inheritance. It's a God-glorifying inheritance. I, I won't spend long at this because it's, it's been all over this passage that all praise to God alone for what he has done. My children are consistently thankful at the dinner table, and I appreciate it. <laughs> they always say, thanks, Mom and Dad, for making this food. And sometimes I say, you're welcome, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> it was all your mom. She did everything. If Andrea did all of the chopping, the sauteing, the mixing, the baking, then I don't want to take credit for something that I didn't contribute to. Of course, I, I could take some credit. You know, I worked, and got some money so that we could purchase this food, or I did the dishes so that the food could be cooked in those dishes, so there is a team effort going on. But when it comes to salvation, we can look at ourselves and we can say without a shadow of a doubt, I didn't do anything. It was all God. That if you wanna thank someone for God, we're not gonna thank ourselves. You're not gonna thank anyone else. It's all praise to God alone. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end, and the only thing that we contribute is the sin that has to be paid for. Which is why Paul says in verse six, this salvation is to the praise of his grace. That's why he says in verse 12 that it is to the praise of his glory. And why he has to say it one more time in verse 14, it is to the praise of his glory. So brothers and sisters, praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. Praise the Father and the Son for the riches of their grace lavished on us. Praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for the equal inheritance that they have planned and guaranteed for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, and he's done it all to the praise of his glorious grace. Would you take a moment of silence and praise the Father in your hearts, and then we will I'll close us in prayer and we'll close in a song. Father, our lips are silent, but our hearts are singing at what you have done for us in Christ. I thank you for all of your goodness, your eternal purposes, the riches of your grace that you've lavished on us, and even today for the spirit that you have given us, this foretaste of all that is going to be ours. Lord, you, you loved us enough to plan this salvation from before time even began. You've, you've loved us all equally in sending your spirit on all who repent and believe, and it's guaranteed. Lord, your spirit is in us even now, and we know that you will come and take us to yourself because of the spirit that is ours now. So Lord, we bless you, we praise you, we give you all glory because it is you alone that deserve praise and glory for what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, even as we sing this song together, would you allow our 
hearts to rise up in worship and then continue to worship you the rest of this week and the rest of our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.